we're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Um, My name, I don't oftentimes even introduce myself uh, to this. If you are new or have even been following for a while and listening to these, my name is Dwight Stoltzfus and I am um, just very thankful that you have clicked on this and I hope that this is going to be in some way, shape or form edifying to you, whether it's an encouragement, a confirmation, maybe it's going to be a challenge or something convicting to you because the way that I teach is not a way in which is going to leave you feeling really good about yourself. The way that I teach is to get you to feel really good about Jesus Christ. Um, And so one way I believe is a flattering way that the Bible tells us actually to avoid such people. One way I believe is an encouraging way and an exhorting way. And that's the ones you want to surround yourself with, not the ones who flatter you, who um, just tell you what your itching ears want to hear, but the people who are going to speak truth to you because they're going to lead you in the way that the Spirit wants you to go. And so that is what I'm hoping that you would get from this podcast, this channel, every single time that I turn this microphone on, that is my aim, is to challenge you, to equip you, um, and to lead you into truth that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you into having those ears to hear and the eyes to see. Today we're going to be talking about Luke chapter 15 on the heels of chapter 14 of just kind of the fundamental cost of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus and what it entails and, and means to, um, to sacrifice In order to do that, today we're going to talk about three parables, one of them being the parable of the prodigal son that is is labeled by man as actually not anything in there about a prodigal son, um, as the word prodigal would indicate, but it is labeled by man and I believe oftentimes misunderstood. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit. So we're going to get right into this. There's a couple things that I've got to kind of have some background to. And we're going to kind of set it up in this first parable. Um, and then we're going to kind of carry that through in these remaining two that are after that one. Start in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. As he's going to tell them the next three parables, all of them have to deal with two groups of people, okay? And it's very foundational and important for you to understand that these three parables are spoken about two groups of people. One, the tax collectors and sinners, and one, the Pharisees and scribes. Both groups do not have flattering words spoken of by Jesus about them. In one, you look at Matthew 18, I think it's in verse 17 where he talks about it, where he says, if a per, you know, if somebody sins, go to them, tell them to fall, take two or three, and then take it to the church if they still don't want to repent. And he says, if they don't listen to the church, then let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Sinners 
or tax collectors. They are people that were deemed on the outside looking in. They were not favored. They were not people who had a whole lot of, of a great reputation. Um, and Jesus is saying, look, I know how you treat them. That's how I'm telling you to treat a person who's part of the church, who doesn't want to repent of their sin. And if they're engaged in that and they, they're arrogant, as 1 Corinthians 5 would even talk about, I want you to have nothing to do with them. Don't even eat with such a one. Okay? Let them be to you as a, jack, as a Gentile or tax collector. Though That was a group of people that while Jesus never shied away from speaking the gospel to them, as Luke 5.32 says, that he did not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was why he came. We could even look at that in, in chapter 5, verse 32. It's the exact same situation. Starting in 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. By the way, he was a tax collector. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes, same two parties, grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we need to be very careful that we understand what he means by righteous. Because you're going to find this, this kind of tone all throughout. He's not talking about people who are actually righteous. Because Romans 3.10 point blank says, None are righteous. No, not one. He says, there, there isn't anyone who is actually righteous in and of themselves. So what is Jesus referencing? He's referencing the Pharisees and the scribes who even in Matthew 23, 13, let me actually turn to it real quick. This is what he says about them in 23, 13. He says, uh, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as yourselves. This doesn't sound like he's talking about righteous people. These are self-righteous, and that's the terminology that's going to be used in these three parables. He talks about them as being blind guides. He talks about how they're those who um, they neglect what they ought to be doing. They're ones who clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. It goes into 25 and 26. He's, he's talking about these people being self-righteous. So I want to establish something real quick. Jesus is telling these three parables because of two groups of people who are present. The Pharisees and scribes as being the self-righteous, that they, they are children of hell. Their father is the devil, as he says in John 6 and John 8. They are not believers. They are not righteous. Okay? They are self-righteous. And then he's talking about the tax collectors and sinners. People who are on the outside looking in. They were considered scum of the world. They were considered people who had no business fellowshipping with the Jews. Even though some of them were fellow Jews. But they, had, they were looked at as traitors because they were tax collectors working for the Romans. And they would take taxes from their own brothers. So they were looked at as traitors. These are the two groups of people as to why he's telling the story. None of them are believers. I want you to understand that. None of these two groups of people are being considered or represented as actual believers. Okay? So let's get into the parables a little bit and see what's going on. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, 
He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Again, understand that the concept of the righteous persons are the ones who are self-righteous. They feel like they don't need to repent of anything because they're good of themselves. Remember, that is a reference to the Pharisees and scribes who I've already read to you, Matthew 23, 13-26, what Jesus said about them. These were self-righteous men. So who are the 99? It's the self-righteous. And I could even give a deeper illustration of this being a concept of the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's why I'm bringing this up. And here's why I'm trying to expound upon this point to show the context of the passage. It's because I've heard people who have said that Jesus will leave 99 Christians to go after one sinner to bring them into the fold. And let me just tell you, that is heretical and has no business being taught. And here's why. Because those same people who teach that also hold to Hebrews 13.5, which says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. So, so let, let me get this straight as to what people are teaching. That God will actually leave the 99 Christians... Even though his word says that he will not leave us nor forsake us, and we actually teach that as doctrine... But he'll leave the 99 Christians to go after the unbeliever as if God takes more joy in an unbeliever who repents of his sin than of those who are holy in Christ. He leaves them to go after one? That doesn't even make sense in the fullness of the text, nor does it fit in the context. Rather, what he's stating here is that these 99 are people who God has created, God has given them life, God has um, shown them the way, if you will, as the Jews. But they didn't want to receive it. So he abandons them to go after the one who's willing to repent and come underneath the mighty hand of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what these parables are actually speaking The 99 is not referencing Christians. The 99 is referencing the self-righteous people who do not want to come under the mighty hand of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Primarily, the Jewish people. It's been a theme throughout the last three or four chapters. He's trying to give them a message, particularly in chapter 13. That that as he even told Paul, right, whenever he was Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes on in Acts chapter 26 and he tells Paul, he says, I'm going to send you, I'm going to deliver you from your own people and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles so that you may preach to them a message so that they would turn from darkness unto light, unto a message and have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This passage, in my estimation, interpretation, is really about the Jews and the Gentiles. But it can be extracted specifically, even more refined than that, to the Pharisees and the scribes of the self-righteous ones and the ones who are the sinners and the tax collectors who are on the outskirts of the kingdom. They are the ones who are looked down upon and God says, I'm sending my message to them just the same through Jesus. Both of them have an opportunity to repent. 
But if those 99 do not want to repent, then they are not going to get into the kingdom. I gave them life. I created them. They were made in my image. But unless they want to come in through Jesus Christ, they will remain outside the kingdom. And as for that one who is willing to repent, who is willing to, uh, to come under my mighty hand, to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and have him as savior of their life, man, I will rejoice over them. And I will bring them into the fold. This is what he's talking about, okay? Keep the context in these parables. It's paramount. If you don't do that, then you are going to get off into some crazy doctrines. The context is the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and the undeserving tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, Every day, all day, I will leave the self-righteous who are prideful, who are arrogant, who are haughty, and I will go after the one who I believe stands a chance to actually repent and humble themselves. Pride comes before the fall, right? As Proverbs says. So let's go on to this next one. Because you look at the concept of what he's saying here, um, that God takes more joy... In a sinner who chooses to humble themselves and repent than he does in 99 self-righteous people who don't think that they need any repentance. Who clean the outside of the cup but inward are full of greed and malice. He goes on, and again, remember Romans 3.10, very paramount to this. None is righteous, no, not one. There is no one. Who is righteous. Just as Romans 3.23 says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nobody out there who has not sinned. There is not a single person before coming to know Jesus Christ. That has not sinned in their life. Everybody is not righteous. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of his glory. That is why we need Jesus. He goes on. In the next parable. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Excuse me. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And remember, why is Jesus telling them this parable? Because the Pharisees and scribes were saying that he was actually unclean and sinning because he was fellowshipping with sinners. And it's very crucial to understand that Jesus was called a friend of sinners. But his own mouth says in John 15, 10 through 14, where he talks about it, he says, You are my friend if you do what I command you. The only way to be a friend of Jesus is to do what he says. To abide by his commands and his word that we have in this new covenant. So the Pharisees were calling him a friend of sinners as a, as a slight, an insult. Jesus didn't ever call himself that. And I say that because a lot of times people like to say Jesus was a friend of sinners. But he was called that. He wasn't a friend of sinners because by his own mouth and admission he says, You're my friend if you do what I command you. So going back into this concept, the reason that, that he's even given this parable is because the Pharisees and scribes were saying that Jesus was in sin, that he was unclean because he was fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. And he's trying to prove to them a point that even though they might be undeserving and even though they might be in a state in which they're wrong and they're sinning, I'm still going to give them the message and I will still rejoice when they repent. But as for you, you're walking in pride. You're walking um, in, in such a way where 
You're not going to repent because you're too full of yourself. And there will be no joy over that. There was joy over the one, but there was no joy for the 99. There's no joy for the nine. Now understand this. This isn't, again, referencing Christians, as some people would like to assume, especially when we get to this prodigal son. There are going to be some extractions that we could make. There could be some things that we try to look at and say, oh, well, it sounds like it could be. Never lose the context as to why Jesus is speaking the parable and never lose the context of what the fullness of God teaches. Now, let's get into this last one. The common conception on this one is that the prodigal son was somebody who was a Christian and they, they backslid to such a degree where they left the father, they wallowed in some mud and some dirt, they got pretty sinful, they got pretty you know, wayward in their belief and all this stuff, uh, or not in their belief, in their life. Um, but then they made their return back to the father. Well, let me, let me just tell you real quick. Oftentimes, I grew up Baptist, and oftentimes that's the sermons that I would hear concerning this one would be that this represents a Christian. And it's somebody who backslides, somebody who, um, you know, began to live a life that was wayward to the gospel, and they weren't doing what they were supposed to, and they, they kind of made a muck of their life, and they began to really make a practice of sinning. Um, but praise God, man, they came back. Well, let me... Let me just read something real quick that in that same doctrinal position of a Baptist, they would like to cling to this concept that, um, let's look at what he says in chapter 3 of 1 John. He says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devils, or of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Why do I bring that up? I bring it up because of the contradiction in the theology. On one hand, we like to say the parable of the prodigal son is of a Christian who went to go make a practice of sinning. And he lived a pretty miserable life and made a muck of his life. But on the other hand, we like to teach that a person who's truly born of God will not make a practice of sinning. Do you see the contradiction? Instead of understanding both 1 John 3 and this parable in their context, we have contradictions. And let me just tell you, atheists will eat that up. And they'll hear that contradiction and they will call you out on it. And many people who have been taught what these are said won't even know how to defend it. Let me just tell you, 1 John 3 is not referencing the life of a Christian um, for the totality of their life. It's referencing the moment of conversion. That's why he talks about being born of God, not living the life of God. The concept of 1 John is referencing this, that a person who had made a practice of sinning before knowing Christ, if they came to meet Christ, they will not continue to walk in that sin. There will be conviction. There will be a desire to turn from that. If there is not that conviction, if there is not that desire to turn from that, and and by consequence turning from it, then they didn't meet Jesus. This is not referencing a Christian 20 years down the road to say that a Christian cannot make a practice of sinning. Later on in his life, it's talking about the one who when they were born of God, they will turn from the sin that they once practiced because conviction is there. 
And if they don't turn from that sin, then they didn't really meet Jesus Christ. That's all 1 John 3 is stating. And this parable, again, getting back to the context of it, he's referencing the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and the undeserving tax collectors and sinners. And we're going to get into this one in the parable of the prodigal son because I want you to notice one thing specifically on here. There was only one who got a sacrifice provided for them. There was only one who the blood of the sacrifice was shed for them. And it was not the self-righteous. Listen to what he says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, my, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The life that had been given to him, he squandered it for his own glory, for his own benefit, for his own things. And in the same way, God gives us life. Even before we come to know him in the life of Christ, God gives us life. He breathes life into us. And we become a living being. We have an, an animate um, existence in which we have a will and emotions. And we have um, all these things. And we have you know, a body that's made in his image. Meaning that is the body, soul, and the spirit. Three in one. We were made in His image, the body, the soul, the spirit. And we were a living being. God gave us that. Even before knowing Jesus Christ, of having the life of God manifest in ourself, breathe into our lungs spiritually in the life of Christ. God still gave us life. We were still His creation. And there's many people who choose to waste that life in reckless living. I believe that to be the context of this. Not a Christian who has had the life of God. But listen... He goes on, he says this, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. He began to realize his depravity. He began to realize that the things of this world were temporal. He began to realize that the things of this world could never fully satisfy him. So what did he do? He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He was desiring to be filled, but he always remained hungry because he had never found that one thing that filled him. Until. Listen to what happens. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Which I just love that because it's the character of God. You see, what's going on here is, is here's this individual who was given life by God. He was a created being of God's. But he was proud. And he was selfish. But through a series of circumstances in his life that no doubt God orchestrated, he came to his senses, he realized his depravity, he realized his great need of something more in life than what this world could provide. And so he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. And he said, I will be willing to even just go back as a servant. I will go back and I will just be a servant to my father. I've realized what, I've, what, what, what it is. I've gone back to my creator, if you will. 
And the father sees him coming and he embraces him. And, and I understand the difficulty sometimes of seeing beyond um, of the, how easy it is to see beyond the context because the wording could very well suggest like a, a repentant Christian coming back to his father. And I get that. I, I, I used to believe that in this. There's a reason why I think a lot of people are kind of deceived into thinking that in this passage. But I want you to always keep the context into why Jesus is speaking this parable and who the two groups of people are. I believe this is a person who has come to realize their depravity, who has realized their selfishness, their greed, and that the world cannot give him what he was wanting. And he found, essentially, he found Christ. And he returned to the author of life so that he could receive life. Even if it meant he had to come as a servant, he was humbled. As opposed to the self-righteous. Listen to what goes on. He says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate For this, my son, listen very carefully to the terminology. This, my son, was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. Now, it's very important to understand that he was dead. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses. A Christian will always have a semblance of the life of Christ in them. Now, they might have something which the word calls being dead or um, necros, which means an inactivity due to sin. But I don't believe that's what he's referencing here. I believe that he's referencing that this man was dead. And he is now experienced and has now found the second life. It's not the physical life. It's the spiritual life. It's the second born, if you will. I've talked about that concept before. You might be unfamiliar with it, but I I don't know where to direct you on that one um, on a podcast that I've done before on it, but I I know I've done it. I think Hebrews, I, I did it several times throughout there. It says he was lost and is found. That's not terminology used for a backsliding Christian who's now come back to the faith. That's terminology that's used for an unbeliever who is dead, who is lost, but now has found the author of life in Jesus Christ and somebody who's now find, found life from the dead. In 1 Peter 2, 25, I'm trying to see, 1 Peter 2, 25, here's what he says. I've got it as a footnote on here of, of a um, cross-reference that I wrote down. So, Okay, yeah, that fits. (laughs) It says, For you were straying like sheep, but but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about an unbeliever. And he says, And you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You got saved. 
That's the context of 1 Peter 2, and it's the exact same concept that he's referencing here. In fact, even in, I've got a a footnote uh, that I wrote in here for a cross-reference of Ezekiel chapter 16. And I am trying to find, maybe I should just turn to my Bible because I'll have it highlighted. Um, I know, I think in theory of what that says, kind of a gist of it. Um, And I think that it's going to be very, very applicable to this. So let me turn to it and find it and see exactly where I've got it highlighted. So bear with me on this. Um... Okay, well, that's going to take me some time to, to search through. Maybe you can go through Ezekiel chapter 16, find out what it says, and see the, the reality that's there. Again, I think this is a correlation to John 3.3 3, when he goes into it and he says, That which is with flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. And he says, You must be born again. Do you notice that word is actually listed there? He was alive again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus tells Jesus, am I to crawl up in my mother's womb? And he's like, man, you're not getting what I'm saying. That which is flesh is flesh, but that which is spirit is spirit. You must be born of the spirit. And I believe that this is the illustration of that, of God's creation returning back to the source of the creation because they've realized and they've understood their depravity and they know they need something more. So what does God do? He embraces us. He puts a ring on his hand, on our hand as a signet to say that we belong to him um, as a ring oftentimes was a signet of. We put shoes on our feet. He gave us the best robe. He fattened the calf and he killed it on our behalf. And he says, let us eat together. Listen to the older son, because I think that one of the primary lessons here is not that of the young son, but of the older son. And I think that's who Jesus is referencing, because I believe that he's specifically trying to speak a message to the Pharisees. And he's trying to show them their self-righteousness. And he says this, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to them your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and he refused to go in remember the context of the passage now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. We're not going to go in with them. We're not going to eat with them. We're too good. What did he just say? But he was angry and refused to go in. Makes me think of Jonah. You could even go into um, Luke chapter 18 verse 9 in which he says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The difference between a tax collector praying and the Pharisee praying who says, Thank you God that I'm not like him. It's the exact same thing. I believe that the primary passage of, or a parable of the prodigal son, as it's listed, is a message to the Pharisees. And it has more to do with the older son than it does the younger, though there's a lot of beauty to the younger son. 
the older son, I believe is who he's referencing. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He says, I never disobeyed your command. You know, there's a parable of the rich young ruler who comes falling down at Jesus' feet, crying out to him, saying, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep the commands. He says, I've done all that. I've kept all the commands. I've done it all. I've all since my youth. And Jesus says, And yet you're still here begging me for eternal life. You're still here saying that you're missing something in life. He said, I'll tell you what. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. And then you can come follow me. And the guy walked away unhappy and disheartened because he had a lot. It's a very similar message here. This older son, he did everything that he thought he was supposed to do, but he trusted in himself that he was righteous in above his own deeds. And he says something very important here. He says, Father, you never gave me a sacrifice. I never had blood spilled for me. I never got to partake of a sacrifice with you, Father. The younger son realized his depravity, realized that he was empty, so he came back to his creator, if you will. He came back to the source of life that he knew, and he humbled himself, and he says, I want to have life. I need to be filled. So he gets what the father wants him to have, and he gets the sacrifice, and he gets to come into the house and eat with the father. Much like a Gentile. And much like the Jews. Who thought that it was their good deeds. And their obedience to the commands of Torah. That was going to get them in good standing with God. They don't partake of the sacrifice. Because they have never humbled themselves. They thought and trusted in their own righteousness. In verse 30 says. But when this son of yours came. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Essentially, I believe, and I get the terminology and why people will, uh, in my estimation, interpret this passage incorrectly. I get the terminology totally and easily being swayed if you miss the context as to why Jesus is speaking this parable and who he's speaking it to. But essentially what I believe that he's saying here is he's like, look, I gave you life and I've given you access to everything. I allowed my son to be poured out on that cross and to shed his blood and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm the one who gave that for you. Everything has been prepared and you've been invited. I want you to share in this. But there's something you have to do first. If you want to have a share in the sacrifice, then you're going to have to humble yourself so that you can discover what was truly life. And I think the message is to this older son who represents the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes, and I think Luke 18.9 says it perfectly as to what is going on, that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. 
He was angry and he refused to go in just as the Pharisees refused to go in to go eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. So, in this parable that's being spoken here, how do you respond to that? I mean, as you study through the Word, let me just say, always make sure that your belief in any parable of what you believe that it's saying fits in the fullness of the text. If you think this is really referencing a righteous person, let me just ask you. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. He even says in Luke 18.9 that they trusted themselves that they were righteous. They really thought that they were righteous. But it was in and of themselves. And in fact, even Paul says that one of the things that he learned was that he was chasing after righteousness through the law of Moses. And then he came to meet Jesus and he realized that none of that had any value. He says, the only value that I find, let me get to it in Philippians chapter 3, let me just read what it says. It says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I think Paul experienced what this younger son experienced. He realized his depravity, his great need for Christ, and he found the life that was found in Christ and the source of righteousness that only comes from God through Jesus Christ and not through the works of the law. Meanwhile, the older son, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were still trying to earn their own righteousness through the law. They were still trying to do their thing, and, but they never got part of that sacrifice because they've never humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. They never realize their own depravity. So how do you respond to this? Well, that's up to you. And I'm going to encourage you to make sure that you dig deep into the text. And don't just take something as surface just because it seems like it might be worded that way. But look deeper in it. And always, always, always keep the context in the passage and make sure that you are keeping in perspective who Jesus is referencing in these parables. Y'all be blessed.